if you care about the future of American politics, if you care about the future of American conservatism, in fact, if you care about the future of the American Republic, then there's one book that you absolutely have to read. It's called The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. And it is my great pleasure today to be joined by the book's author, Matthew Continenti. Matthew, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Now, I, I read your book, um, and I have to say, there's a lot in it that I found extraordinarily illuminating, not just about the current state of the conservative movement in America, but about the past. My generation tends to think of American conservatism in terms of Ronald Reagan, but your book almost suggests that Reaganite conservatism is an aberration. Was it just an aberration? Well, I think it was um, unique in a few ways. Uh, one, uh, Reaganite conservatism um, came to power during a unique historical circumstance, which was the Cold War, um, the fight against the Soviet Union and world communism, uh, which really begins in the aftermath of World War II and then comes to a uh, successful conclusion uh, with the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. And that is a, a, a defined historical experience, right? Um, and uh, the conservatism that existed in the Cold War was in several respects different than the conservatism that preceded the Cold War and that came after the Cold War. I would say too, Another way in which the Reagan conservatives were unique was in the character of their leader. Uh, Ronald Reagan was a very unusual man. He was almost completely self-contained. He didn't allow really anyone into his innermost feelings and self. There was always kind of a distance between him and everyone around him. Now, even Nancy Reagan didn't quite get to the the inner uh, peace of her husband. But what that allowed Reagan, uh, that detachment, was a confidence in himself and a confidence in his principles. And those principles were remarkably continuous over the course of his public life. A belief in American exceptionalism, a belief in human freedom, and a belief that um, Individuals have the right to pursue their own destiny. And if government gets in the way, then government should be uh, reduced and um, barriers should be lowered for the individual to achieve their uh, innermost uh, purposes. Um, and Reagan, of course, was a rock ribbed anti communist as well. So I think in the nature of the historical moment, and in the nature of the leader, yes, you can say that Reagan conservatism was unique, something of an aberration in the hundred year story of the right. If, if the Reaganite period of conservatism was the kind of the high watermark, in, in order to kind of get there, you shed some fascinating light on how people like William Buckley and, and, and others built this movement. And it wasn't a foregone conclusion. They, they almost consciously fused Christian traditionalism with a belief in the free market. Um, tell us a little bit about how they did that before we go on to talk about how that may be coming apart. 
Well, I, I should start by saying that for William F. Buckley Jr., the founder of National Review Magazine and in many ways the founder of the post-war conservative movement, um, it, it wasn't a conscious decision to marry uh, devout Catholicism with uh, free market economics. It was in a way in his in his blood, uh, in his in his heritage. His father, Will Buckley, was also a devout Catholic and was also a laissez-faire market capitalist. And the younger Buckley, Buckley Jr., was brought up in a home where those two belief systems were not seen as incompatible. And so um, even though uh, we've had a long running debate on the right about how uh, there, there are theoretical problems in combining social conservatism, religious conservatism with an embrace of the market, uh, those theoretical problems often aren't visible in practice. <laughs> or in the person of someone like William F. Buckley Jr., or from that matter, someone like Ronald Reagan, who also had a very serious set of religious beliefs. Um, but let's talk about institution building. I think the post-war, that is the post-World War II American right, recognized just how on the margins of American politics and society it was in the aftermath of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And so there, it was a conscious decision to build up institutions that could propagate um, the belief system of the emerging conservative movement and also educate the next generation of leaders to carry these ideas uh, about the importance of uh, social order, private virtue, as well as market capitalism, anti-communism into the political sphere. And so whether it was institutions like National Review Magazine or Human Events Newsletter, or um, institutions like the Intercollegiate um, uh, Studies Institute, uh, it was originally called the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists, ISI, um, whether it was institutions like uh, the Montpelerin Society, which uh, Frederick Hayek created in the aftermath of World War II, uh, or even um, something like Young Americans for Freedom, much more grassroots politically oriented. That period between the end of the Second World War and let's say Barry Goldwater's uh, run for the presidency in 1964, so about a 20-year period, um, was uh, just a renaissance of institution building on the right. I'm of course, today there are lots and lots of institutions, so a, a very crowded field. I'm talking to you from Mississippi, where we have a, a number of free market think tanks in just one state. Um, you can't move around uh, DuPont Circle in, in Washington without tripping over um, think tankers. But are there any that you think are doing anything particularly good and particularly important? Um, and do you think there are things that we in the think tank movement need to do differently? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, of course, uh, I belong to a think tank. I'm speaking to you today from my offices at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm very proud of the work. One of those great institutions. Yep. Uh, I'm very proud of the work of AI um, in foreign policy, in social policy, domestic policy, economic policy. Um, and there are now in the post 
presidency of Donald Trump, there are now new institutions on the so-called new right, which are trying to formulate policies that carry on the legacy of the Trump administration. I think of an institution such as American Moment. I think of the national conservative movement, uh, the conferences that are held um, on an annual basis organized by the Edmund Burke Foundation and its leadership, uh, Yoram Hazoni and Christopher DeMuth. Um, uh, I, I think right now, the right is in an unusual place um, because it has gone through the experience of the Trump administration and is still trying to um, interpret the meaning of that experience. And so uh, uh, there's a lot of creativity going on. Um, there is new thought. If you look at, say, the um, family uh, policy proposals uh, by Mitt Romney, uh, if you look at, say, some of the um, uh, economic uh, policies um, that are orient, uh, oriented toward our relationship with China that Senator Rubio has proposed, for example, um, there is policy work being done that's very interesting. And the, the, the biggest change on the right in recent years has been um, a change in attitude. Um, and the right now feels as it has to be much more aggressive in fighting the left that is dominant in many of our cultural and even now business institutions. Um, and so that posture is not something that you can kind of come up within a think tank. It, it has to be practiced. And I think that's why um, many um, uh, figures on the right are looking to Governor DeSantis of Florida for leadership. And I also noticed too that the new president of the Heritage Foundation, Kevin Roberts, I think is moving in that direction, being a little bit more uh, forward about the cultural agenda and fighting um, wokeism uh, wherever it appears. It's, it's interesting because when I started in this role 18 months ago, I thought that an economic remit was by and large going to be our focus. But I've come to realize that actually the battle for the future in many respects isn't just related to questions about increases in per capita GDP and, and, and deregulation and tax cuts, important though all of that is. There's a fundamental debate about the American story, the American narrative, American history. And it seems to me that as a think tank, we have to speak to that. We have to have something to say. And in fact, we're working on a, a, a series of a, 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 called the uh, America Explained series to do precisely this, because I wouldn't quite say we're engaged in a culture war, but the front line is very different to where it might have been in sort of 1982, 83. That's, uh, I think, very true. Um, you know, with Reagan um, and Reagan conservatism, the fight was over the size and scope of government. And communism, of course, the most extreme example of a totalitarian government that is all-encompassing uh, and crushes the freedom of the individual. We seem in this period to move on to a new era where the argument is really over what it means to be an American. Uh, what is your view of American history? How do you treat uh, American symbols or statuary? Mm -hmm. um, 
what, what should you be proud to be an American? What does America's role in the world mean? Uh, and how does that relate to your uh, idea of American society? These are the live questions today, not so much about the size and scope of government. It makes for a cultural debate. It also makes for a much more adversarial debate uh, between the two sides. And um, that is something I worry about quite a bit. I can tell you as a, a fairly recent arrival to America, I've only been in America for 18 months, um, as you can tell from my strong Southern accent. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I, there's not a morning I haven't woken up in America and been grateful for being here. Um, as an outsider, I think I see with a clarity that sometimes Americans don't always have. I, I see with a clarity just what an extraordinary country this is. I mean, it's, it's just, a, 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 it is the greatest country in the world. It's without doubt. Um, I, I, I think making sure that the younger generation understands that and appreciates that. You know, no, no country is perfect, but my goodness, America is a lot more perfect than pretty much any other country that's ever existed. And I think making sure people realize that is, is very much um, part of our mission as, as, as the right. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and of course, the immigrant experience uh, is a continual reminder of American greatness. Uh, I recently uh, came across on Twitter an interview with a Chinese strategist who was asked, you know, is America in decline? And this Chinese strategist said, when there isn't a two-hour wait in front of an American consulate for a visa, that's when America will be in decline. And I, and I thought that was just a perfect moment of how, in this case, a, a spokesman for our adversaries sees America more clearly than the American intelligentsia and media. Now, I'm interested in what you might have to say about the relationship between the right and mainstream opinion in America, because this is, I think, an area where perhaps the conceit of the right uh, means that they don't perceive themselves quite how middle America sometimes sees them. I, I'm fascinated, for example, in the book, at quite how strong the America first sentiment was. And it's not really until Japan attacked America that that was overcome. We see it again today where attempts, in my view, quite sensible attempts by Joe Biden to support Ukraine are met with, you know, vociferal hostility um, where people are saying, you know, why, why are you spending money arming um, Ukrainians? How uh, it reminds us that our views on America's internationalist role, perhaps views on the free market, maybe even views on free trade which are taken as textbook by many on the right, they might actually not have that deep uh, uh, following amongst middle America. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think there's something to that. Um, just middle America as a geographic space, the Midwest uh, has typically been the more isolationist part uh, of the country when you look at uh, voter sentiment toward in involvement in the outside world. Um, and way I would say is that um, before World War II, the right uh, was very uh, Jeffersonian in its belief in small government uh, and uh, beginning to be um, more Jacksonian in its sense that, uh, you know, if America gets hit, then we hit them back. But 
otherwise we don't really care about what goes on. Um, the, the, the Cold War and the threat of global communism turn, made the right, uh, I'm using, of course, Walter Russell Mead's framework here, uh, more Hamiltonian, more 